if you have your Bibles, go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, as the band gets down and gets settled. 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you know, our preference around here is not typically to kind of parachute into a text, but instead to preach through books of the Bible. So I'm going to assume, I'm unfortunately going to have to assume a lot of context and, and uh, a lot of parts here, but I think uh, we'll still serve the text well this morning. As I said earlier, happy Mother's Day to to, uh, to you that are mothers, and um, I can't begin to imagine uh, what it's like to be a mother, and what it's like to be a father, and that's hard enough, but a mother has to put up with not only her kids, but also with her husband, so as my wife reminded me, I said, you are a wonderful mother of three, she said, I was four, <laughs> and I said, well, you're pregnant, no, no, not pregnant. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I, I wish I would have. It would have been funny if I would have. <laughs> it was, uh, we were reflecting last night, it was four years ago on Mother's Day that we told our families that, uh, that they were going to be uh, grandparents again, uh, Chapman. So it was kind of a reminder of a few years ago. And, um, but uh, my hope today is that uh, we're going to try, like, the aim for today in today's sermon is kind of twofold. One is to help us understand the meaning of this text for all of our lives. Each one of us, what does this text say to us today? What does it mean? How does it speak into our lives today? For each one of us to understand ultimately what pursuing a godly life entails, as we're about to read about, both the persecution that comes with that and the rich, sustaining power of the Word of God. That's kind of aim number one. Aim number two is that after we've probed through the text concerning that, we're going to take a deeper look at how this text should be so incredibly encouraging to you mothers and to you hopeful mothers. Um, I think this text, as a mother, should challenge and encourage it should refresh and revitalize. It should also focus and narrow your calling as a mother. Uh, I think in our, both in Christian like religious circles and in the world, we have so entangled uh, what it means to be a woman in so many different things. Like we've just wrapped her up and chained her to so many different things that, that one of those things that she has been called by God to do, and that is to be a mother, has been kind of pushed to the side. Uh, so I hope that this text will help encourage you ladies uh, in that endeavor. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're just going to be in verses 10 through 17. Just while you guys are getting there. Ten through seventeen says, "This is again Paul writing to Timothy. Says you, however, have followed my teaching, 
my conduct. Now, real quick, what just happened prior to this, he's talking about godlessness. He's talking about just the evil wretchedness. He talks about arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, un, unappeasable, slanderous people. That's what he's talking about. He says, but you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have heard and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, uh, you would bless these words this morning. Father, we know they come with a promise of sanctification in our lives and, and in persevering our faith, but Father, I pray that as we approach the word, we would, we would recognize and realize that our hearts are either going to be softened in these next few moments towards your righteousness and your worthiness and your glory, or our hearts are going to be hardened and more desireful to worship ourselves. So Father, I pray that for each one of us today that we would, we would see your beauty in the text and we would see you as more worthy of worship than ourselves. And Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name, amen. So the first thing we see, first thing we see in this text is that persecution is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. Paul understood persecution as something that will happen. Now, he doesn't say what it's going to look like, he doesn't say how long it's going to happen, he doesn't say how, he doesn't give us all these like details and how all this is supposed to look, but he says persecution is inevitable for the person who pursues, desires, and pursues a godly life. Look at verse 10 through 13 with me again. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecution and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I want to point out a few things for us here in the text. First of all, there are two options. There are those who desire to live a godly life, and there are those who are evil. Paul doesn't give a third category. He gives two categories, those who desire to live a godly life and those who are evil. There, are, there is no in-between category, and the category that we tend to put in-between there is what is popularly known as the 
carnal Christian category. Someone who would profess faith in Christ, but would live like the world, and yet we still want to maintain that they're followers of Jesus. Paul says there's two categories. He gives two categories here. Those who desire to follow God, and those who don't. Because Christians overcome the world. It's right in the context. I mean, again, there's a lot that we haven't been working through 2 Timothy, but he's talking about godlessness. And then in juxtaposition to that godlessness, or in opposition to that godlessness, is someone who would desire and to live a godly life. Two categories. And I think it's important for us to first establish this, this idea that we can be a Christian and still look like the world and not desire righteousness is just horrendous. And Paul says, those who desire a godly life will face persecution. Because a Christian who looks like the world doesn't face persecution. Because you're just going with the flow of the world. You know, what's interesting, and it's kind of this, to lead us through this text, is that it's only possible to maintain some sort of carnal Christian doctrine where you have a Christian who, who still lives like the world and yet doesn't really follow Christ is if we somehow strip the Christian life down to just simply being external acts of righteousness that are done in the flesh. Because I can still live like the world, but yet kind of distance myself enough from the world where I'm not doing the real evil things, right? Like, you know, like smoking and getting tattoos and getting drunk. Like, that's what the world does, right? Right? I mean, I know our worship leader has tattoos. I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious, okay? Just, just for this. And our other elder has a tattoo. Uh, that, anyways, <laughs> I'm just too big of a sissy, you know. There's nothing spiritual about that. Uh, But like if we stay away from those evil things, right? Those that, and, and we reduce the Christian walk down to just something external where I'm just doing these things that, that are not the real evil things. Then we can somehow maintain someone who genuinely, like someone who follows Christ, but not like, not, a, not really. Because they're still just dancing in the world. They're just staying away from the real evil things. So we're going to start, we're going to kind of flesh that out as we go. But the next thing I want you to see is that desire here, I think, is a key word. Desire is a key word for us to understand in this passage. Because the reality is, is that we will not experience the full reality of perfect, godly living on this side of eternity. I think the idea of the desire, Paul's driving to something here. And the idea of this life coming from something deeper within is not a foreign concept to Scripture. The idea that the Christian life is more than just ex externals is not a foreign concept to Scripture. Paul is referring to not righteous actions, but he's talking about a desire for godly living. Something that's coming from within. I don't have time to explain this, but... but and we'd also understand that it's something that only God can bring about inside of us. So therefore, this hope for righteousness, if it comes from 
a desire within, ultimately our hope for righteousness comes from God as He would be the one that would bring about the desire that would then lead to the righteousness that we are talking about. Paul's making a point here. It's not primarily about the externals. I think what Paul is saying is it's primarily about the internal. It's about the desire. Where is that desire at? Is it the desire for godly living or is it the desire for unrighteousness? He says those who desire godly living will experience persecution. So I think the third thing that we see here is that the link between godly living and persecution is this idea of in Christ. Let me, let me help us flesh that out. Because God, here's, here's what I want to say as we flesh this out kind of at the beginning. That godly living, true godly living comes from, is born out of, is perpetuated by the fact that we are in Christ. That we are abiding in Christ. In Christ in us. So true godly living comes from that. And when that happens, persecution is inevitable. So let's, let's work through that. Godly living must begin with the desire. And this desire is found as we are found in Christ. If someone does not have a desire for godly living, then they're not in Christ. And someone that's in Christ will have a desire for godly living. It's not that your externals, your actions, will give the appearance of godly living, but that your godly living will come from this desire for godly living. You see, that was the difference. The, the Pharisees had a desire to look godly, but not really to be godly. And for many of us, I think, if we were to be honest with ourselves, that is our greatest desire as well. We would desire more greatly to look righteous than to actually be righteous. But Paul says that this desire for godly, that this, this godly living would come from a desire. So godly living comes from a desire or the heart, then sin must be dealt with or unrighteousness must be dealt with at the heart. Now, as we're in this context of thinking about persecution as inevitable, I believe this is where the distinction between us and the world grows tremendously. This idea of dealing with sin at a heart level, something that you and I can't fix even ourselves, it must depend upon God. That as we do that, as we live that way, as we think that way, as we depend on God that way, that this is where the distinction between us and the world grows tremendously. And I think this is at the very point at which tension begins to increase between us and the world. Now let me give a disclaimer. We know little of persecution, genuine physical persecution on this side of the globe. So I just, I don't want to pretend for a moment that any of our persecution might even at the least bit parallel that of a brother or sister who is in torment or who is about to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. I don't want to pretend 
that for just a moment. But I'm convinced that part of the reason why we don't face persecution is because we don't pursue holiness of the heart. Like we pursue righteous looking, but we don't pursue righteous living. We want people to see us as righteous, but we don't necessarily care about the righteousness that's inside. We simply pursue the appearance of holiness so that we don't have to deal ultimately with the heart because that's the hard part to deal with, right? If I just look righteous, people stay off my case. I mean, particularly in this church, right? That'd be a temptation. As long as I just look righteous, then, then people won't jump on me about my sin and hold me accountable for that. So the temptation here could even be great to do that. Historically, I just, just, as I've just briefly looked at you know, our church culture and, and, and where we find ourselves historically, here's what pursuit of holiness has looked like. I've alluded to this already. No smoking, drinking, illegal drugs, no cursing, watching porn, or getting tattoos. Like, that's what pursuit of holiness has looked like in our church culture for the past half a century, and probably even beyond that. But we, the thing is, we all still do this today. Right? If, if I abstain from these things that I deem as unholy, and as long as I just abstain from those things, then I can somehow grasp or maintain some level of feeling of righteousness in my life, and certainly that the people around me would see me as righteous as well. Instead, what should be happening is in the pursuit of holiness... We should be diving into the deepest and darkest parts of our heart to uncover where that sin is coming from. And the reality is, is when you begin to do this, you begin to see your desperate need for your Creator and for your Savior. Because you can't fix that. As we think about parenting, like one of, one of my roles in parenting is to help my kids see their desperate need for God. That they can't live morally apart from God. Like they can live this worldly defined morality, certainly. People do that all the time. But that doesn't make them right before a holy God. We teach them that their desperate need for God. How can I teach my kid their desperate need for God if I desperately try to... To, uh, to handle this on my own and to fix it myself instead of resting in my desperate need for a holy God. Now, again, back to the context of pursuing like, like godly living and persecution is inevitable. Think about this with me. The world around us is similar when it comes to these external things. They either easily stay away from the same things we deem as unrighteous, or they just simply don't care. But I would imagine many of the people that, that we work with, that we go to school with, that, that we engage with, are not child molesters, are not these you know, wicked, evil people that, that, we would, that we would go, okay, well, I, because I stay away from those things, I'm now somehow righteous before God. Guys, even the world can find ways to temper 
and control these same things that are external that we deem as unrighteous. They can find a way to temper not doing illegal drugs. They can find a way to, 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 to hold back from doing those things. They can find a way to hold back from, from engaging in sexual activity that is unacceptable to our current culture. They can, they can hold back from doing some of those things. But what they cannot do is they cannot deal with sin at the heart. They cannot. They have no mechanism to deal with that. We do. Just think about this. Just keep following my thought with me. So when you begin to press into, when we begin to press into God, and He reveals the sins that are in our heart, and then begins to bring about restoration, as a kingdom citizen, your redeemed heart can do nothing but begin to press into the people around you. Guys, the redeemed heart that God has brought about is not something that we can just put in a closet and just ignore when we go to work, ignore when we go to school, ignore when we're around our family members. It's not something that just sets off to the side. But it's something that begins to rub with the culture in such a way that it begins to feel uncomfortable. I think the danger for us today is that our hearts have grown so comfortably numb with the idea of pursuing holiness that, that when we come in contact with those who don't know Jesus Christ, we don't look any different. I mean, oh, but in our mind we look different, right? That's what we would say, right? Well, I know my heart's in... Uh, is, is your pursuit of holiness rubbing with tension around you? I am now... Uh, hear me very clearly. I just got to give a quick disclaimer. This doesn't mean that you become some rude, Bible-thumping, know-it-all, holier-than-thou Christian. That's not what I'm talking about. If anything, that your pursuit of holiness becomes so precious to you that you desire for those around you to pursue holiness with you. So you don't become a rude jerk about it like the Pharisees, but instead you become a loving, compassionate person leading them to a loving, compassionate Savior who can rescue them from their unholiness and can rescue us from our unholiness. So as this happens, you begin to, as you begin to pursue holiness from a heart level, then the tension begins to rise because, again, now the world around you cannot deal with that. Oh, but they can avoid doing illegal drugs just like you and I can avoid doing illegal drugs, but they can't deal with their pride in such a way that it turns into worship of God. They can't. You and I can. So their options are this. The, those around us, the, the world, those who are not following Christ, their options are this. It's either indifference, surrender, or hostility. 
And I wonder if we were genuinely pursuing holiness in our lives, if there was truly a desire for godly living, how much more persecution would we face? I think that's just something we have to, each one of us, think about. Do I genuinely have a desire for godly living? Now, be careful that you don't create this 1 plus 1 equals 2 and that you say, well, if I'm not, pers- I'm not facing persecution, therefore I must not be pursuing godly living. It's not what I'm saying. But there is some kind of correlation here between the desire to pursue godly living and the inevitability of persecution. There's a connection there that we should ask ourselves, am I not facing persecution because I'm not living godly? That's at least a good question for us to ask. Do I look so much like the people I work with that they wouldn't know me from any other person, whether they're saved or not, or following Jesus or not? Or do they know? Do they know? Now remember, when we think about Christ, the majority of his persecution came from the religious elite, right? The, the, uh, the Pharisees. Why? I think, at least in part, part of the reason why he faced so much persecution from the Pharisees is that they were doing the same thing. They were only concerned about the externals of their lives. They were concerned about, do I look righteous before men? But when Jesus came, what was Jesus concerned about? He was concerned about sin that came from the heart. And he was talking about the evilness of the heart. That's why he came, to give us a new heart. So what happens, this tension begins to well up inside of the Pharisees. And they were faced with heart issues that they had no hope for. They had no hope for that. I don't think that the Pharisees at this point were so clueless when it came to the Old Testament about this idea of the heart being evil. If they knew the Old Testament, then they knew that. They knew that sin had to be dealt with at a deeper level. I don't think they were ignorant when they came to that, if they genuinely knew the Old Testament. But instead, what happens, their pride and self-righteousness kept them from dealing with sin at the heart. So a couple questions. Christian. Do you engage your sin from its depth? Or do you fix the external only to see it appear again or appear in a different form? See, many of us, we've, you have, I've used this illustration before, we approach sin like we do cutting a yard. Like my yard right now looks supreme. Like it looks beautiful. It looks just as gorgeous as the guys next door to me that spend hundreds of dollars on lawn treatments. It's beautiful. In like two days, it'll look horrible. Why? Because the dandelions all come back up. The weeds grow quicker than the regular grass, you know, like, like the good grass. And I mean, to me, it's all green. But, you know, in, in a couple days, like, it starts looking bad. So what happens is many of us just mow down our sin. We don't actually confess it and repent of it and and dig in to see where it's coming from in our hearts and so what happens then is in a couple days it just comes right back 
Sometimes it comes back in a different form. But if you don't deal with it with God, then it's just going to come back. The question is, do you deal with that at a deeper level? For example, pride. I'm just just tease this out for a second. Externally, you know, if I'm going to approach pride from an external sense, I'm going to remind myself every time I'm prideful that I need to be humble, right? I'm just going to remind myself that every time that I'm prideful that I need to be humble. Uh, that might last a couple times or a couple weeks. But if I'm going to deal that at the heart, maybe I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to repent that I believe that I'm more worthy of worship than God is. Ultimately, that's what pride comes down to, is that I'm more worthy of worship than, than God is. And if I fix this heightened estimation of myself by understanding my place before God, then now I can begin to repent for this evilness that's inside of my heart, where I adore and worship myself more than I worship God. Now, you never, most of us don't think of pride as being worship of self versus worship of God, but that's very much what it is. You see, though, that the heart issue of worshiping God more than worshiping myself, if worship is more than an external reaction, right? If it's more than just, I can sing, I'm going to sing praises to God more, right? That's going to fix my pride. But the reality is, is, what does your heart find more glory in? Yourself, that which you, you ascribe pride to your life for? Or do you find that your heart desires God more and worships Him more and sees Him as more worthy. So Christian, how do you do it? For those of you who don't know whether you're a follower of Christ or not, or maybe sorting through some of that, I wonder if you feel a tension. Let me ask you some questions. Ever murdered anyone? I mean, don't, don't answer this out loud because we'll have to deal with that. <laughs> Ever cheated on your spouse? Are you currently trapped in illegal drugs? Anybody planning to rob anyone this, this next week? You pay your taxes? I mean, you're good to go, right? Got all the externals down. You're not doing these horrific things. Jesus says that you've, if you've lusted in your heart, that you've committed adultery. Because Jesus sees it as not just an external action, but as something that begins inside here. Jesus says if you've ever hated your brother, then you're as guilty as murder. Jesus says you have no hope for what's inside your heart apart from him. So what must we do? What must you do? You must confess your sinfulness and helplessness to God. Repent of this sin that you can do nothing about. And these sins, ultimately all of them, that you can do nothing about. That I can do nothing about. And then place your trust in Jesus as the one who lived without those sins. He lived a life that you could not live and paid a price for your sin that you could not pay. And then submit your life to Him Lay yourself at His mercy. So, are we dealing with sin at a, at a heart level? Is there a desire 
for godly living is kind of where I'm driving into in this passage for all of us. Is there a desire for godly living? And then ask ourselves, is that maybe why there's no persecution happening in my life? I'm not saying we should all wish persecution upon ourselves. But we have to ask the question. What's going on here is that these people were pursuing godly living. Paul is saying that this persecution in the context is, is inevitable. It will come. And I think this is, I think Paul understood it this way because of, in his mind, godly living was not divorced from the heart. The idea of pursuing God was not divorced from an internal reality like we've done today. There's this external living of godliness, and then there's my heart part over here. Paul's saying that in order for this godly living to come out, it has to begin with this desire. You see, in Paul's day, you did not like act, you did not act like a Christian in this context for appearance' sake. Why? Because you would be killed. Like, none of us would go, oh, yeah, cool, I want to go be a Christian so they can kill me. So who's going to act, who's going to pursue godly living in this context? Those who truly can do nothing but pursue godly living because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Those are the only people who are going to do it because then they're going to lose their lives if they do or at least face that potential So I wonder if persecution would not come more in our lives when we understand godly living as the Bible teaches it and not how our church culture has created it conveniently to be. So how do we pursue or how do we persevere in godly living is the next question I think we have to ask. How do we then persevere in this godly living? Paul says that the scriptures are invaluable. The scriptures are invaluable. In this pursuit of holiness, and in the midst of persecution, the scriptures, he says, will be invaluable. You will need them. They're necessary. You will not make it without them. He says in the latter part of verse 15 of chapter 3, acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So he says here, some things to point out, that the scriptures are able to instruct toward salvation. The scriptures, imagine that. The word of God is able to instruct towards salvation. It's to make you wise for salvation. To instruct one to know one's desperate need for a Savior. To persevere in working out one's salvation. These are, Paul wants us to know that in this pursuit of godly living, that the scriptures are able to instruct us in this pursuit. There's a whole lot more we can say about that. We're going to move forward. The scriptures are also, second thing to note, that the scriptures are able to equip you for every good work. More specifically, 
for every good work that God would have for you. In this pursuit of godly living, the scriptures are profitable in accomplishing this task. Profitable in accomplishing the task of equipping for every good work. Timothy here is a pastor of a church, and Paul is instructing him on how those who are pursuing godly living are going to persevere. And he says that it's through the invaluable scriptures. These are what's able to make one wise, and they're profitable for training, reproof. He understands that they're profitable, correction, training in righteousness. Now think about this, just in kind of different categories. Clearly Paul's writing to Timothy, and Timothy is a pastor, so that's the kind of the immediate context. Paul's instructing and encouraging him on how to understand the Scriptures as they pertain to his work as a pastor. That's immediately what's going on in this context. But certainly not limited to that. So we'd understand Timothy as, as an individual, like, like just as a, as a person pursuing godliness, there is instruction for Timothy about his own personal life here too. Paul is instructing him, and us for that matter, on how to understand the usefulness of scriptures as they pertain to our pursuit of godly living as individuals. The application is not just, hey, Tim, hey, if you're a pastor, by the way, the word's good for this. But no, as an individual, Timothy. Because why? Because there's a personal connection that Paul says, Timothy, remember the past. That the word did this to you. So Christian, a question in that as we think about our pursuit of godly living and our understanding of the role of the word in our lives, question for a Christian does your pursuit of knowing the Word tell a story of value in the Scriptures, or does it tell a story of self-sufficiency? Let me ask that question again. Does your pursuit of knowing the Word tell a story of value of the Scriptures, or value in the Scriptures, or does it tell a story of self-sufficiency? What I'm asking is, do you actually study the Word? Or do you got this? When Paul is instructing Timothy on godly living, he tells him that the Scriptures are invaluable. And then we think of this, clearly has application from Timothy to other people, whether as a pastor or not. Paul is implying here that the usefulness of the Scriptures from one brother or sister to another brother or sister, of course, brother or sisters in Christ, that there is value there. Again, re- let me remind you, he's telling Paul, or t- Paul's telling Timothy, to remember when someone did this to you, as he's doing now, as Paul's doing now, he's to remember someone did this to you. What does Paul say to Timothy? He tells him that a mother teaching the word is inevitable. I'm sorry, is memorable. (laughs) Wrong word. That a mother teaching the word is memorable. So part of my point here is that Paul's not just saying, hey, if you're a pastor, understand these words as valuable to you as a pastor. Because he says to Timothy... Remember your mother and your grandmother. 
Now, he's not saying, and what I don't mean is not memorable in a cute keepsakes sort of way, but memorable in such a way as to encourage and perpetuate the perseverance of the salvation in a follower of Christ's life. Memorable in that it would serve the purpose of pushing and encouraging and securing the perseverance of a follower of Christ. All of us, particularly mothers, you have the opportunity to create memories in your kids that could be integral to the beginning of the worship of the King and to their continued worship of the King. That's your opportunity. There's more I can say. We've got to keep going. Before we move through this, I, I want to say something, because now we're going to talk a lot about motherhood in this. And I want to say to those who are without kids, if you're a part of the body of Christ, you're not without kids. You have lots of kids, particularly in this church, okay? If you want mine, just come get them. Uh, you have them as long as you want. But seriously, though, if you're without kids, it is a good desire to want kids. I encourage you to desire God more, and then in His timing, uh, He may bless in that way. If you have older kids, it may be too late to create memories in their childhood, but you can still redeem the time now. Don't think that, uh, that it's all a waste, or I wish I'd have done more. I mean, certainly those are maybe accurate uh, assessments, but what are you going to do with the time as a mother, as a father now? Are you going to walk in self-sufficiency now? Or are you going to depend on the Word and help create memories in your kids' lives today? Whether they're 30, 50, 10, or 12. Because Eunice and Lois created memories in their kids' lives. Not just grand, like, Christian memories. But they taught him the Word. That were able to make him wise to salvation. So as we think through this, mothers, you have an opportunity to lead your kids to the very words of God. Do you understand that, moms? Dads, even? Dads, let me say to you guys as well, I skipped over this. Uh, as we talk about this in application to mothers, it doesn't leave us dads off the hook. If anything, you're responsible to help your wives do this uh, and lead. What I mean by help them is it's your responsibility to lead them in this. So if anything, there's, there's more weight on you. I'm just kidding. But if anything, like there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a responsibility in you men to help your wives live what they're called to be. So with that said, mothers, you have an opportunity to lead your kids to the very words of God. Like, do you, do you understand that? First and foremost. Paul says that they are breathed out by God. Do you understand that you have that opportunity? You will either use it or you will squander it. You have that opportunity, the very words of God. And you have the opportunity to lead them to the very words of God in such a way that not Paul, but that the Holy Spirit might say someday to your kids, remember what your mother taught you.
Not that she taught you how to do the dishes or she taught you how, but she taught you the sacred writings. Paul says in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Understand, Paul, Paul could have just said, hey, just don't forget what you've learned. But Paul takes the, the, the time and the point to draw out remembering from whom you learned it. And he, takes, he goes to, to great extent here, if you will, to, to help us see that there's a role in which we get to play, that you mothers get to play in the instructing of your child. See, in the midst of instructing Timothy on godly living, he instructs Timothy to remember the scriptures, but he also reminds Timothy to remember who taught him the scriptures. Who is it that taught him? I've already alluded to this. 1 Timothy 1.5, we read earlier, it says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first, where? In your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Who was taught? Who taught Timothy the scriptures? His grandmother and his mother taught him the word. I want you to notice here that as Paul is instructing Timothy on how to lead his church, he tells him a couple things. One, know the scriptures. Know that the scriptures are good for teaching, reproofing, etc. And he said, number two, you know this because your mother and grandmother did the same to you. They believed that the scriptures were useful for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Timothy knows that his mother and grandmother believed that the scriptures were good for this. Now Paul is telling Timothy to do the same thing. And mothers, I want you to see that you have a high and holy calling. Moms, do you know that? You have a high and holy calling. God has given you kids not so that they can get straight A's, not so that they can swing a stupid bat or throw a football, not so that they can behave when your friends come over so you don't look bad, not so that they can become proficient at watching TV. He has given you kids to equip for the work of God. He has given you kids so that you can help them pursue godly living. What a wonderful opportunity. God has invited you to take part in His redemptive work. What you see before you, for many of us, like self-included, is an unredeemed, evil enemy of God. Their names were Chapman, Hayden, and Silas. And I have the opportunity to lead them, to teach them the scriptures that are able to make them wise for salvation. Moms, you have that opportunity. Paul is commending here to Timothy and to us the model that his mother and grandmother lived. So mothers, like this is to be encouraging. Like, like this is an opportunity that you have. Because the idea of modeling and imitation is not a foreign concept to Paul, right? He's encouraged in other places to follow him and imitate him as he imitates Christ. So mothers, let's think about this for a few moments. What was it that Lois and Eunice did 
that Paul is commending and that is worthy of your imitation. First of all, the call of biblical motherhood is to teach the scriptures so that her children might be redeemed. The call of biblical motherhood is to teach the scriptures so that her children might be redeemed. Notice that Eunice and Lois taught Timothy the scriptures that were able to make him wise for salvation. Mothers, teach your kids the scriptures so that they are wise for salvation. Moms, do you spend more time teaching them how to watch TV or teaching them the very words of God? Moms, do you spend more time teaching them to clean the house? or the very thing that would cleanse their heart. And certainly, I mean here, I hope this you would assume this already, but I mean this more than just teaching them the Romans road. Teaching them the gospel and how it should permeate and, and drive every part of their lives. You must lead their hearts to understand through the scriptures their desperate need for a Savior. So the call of biblical motherhood is to teach the scriptures so that your children might be redeemed. Certainly there's no guarantee of their redemption. But the scriptures are able to make them wise for salvation. Second thing, the call of biblical motherhood is to equip for every good work that God has ordained. The text here says, so that your children might be competent that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Right now, your call is to prepare your children for the work that God has planned for them, that they have no clue what that looks like, and neither do you. You don't know what God has in store for your child. So how do you lead them to be competent? You teach them the Scriptures. It's, you teach them the scriptures, like getting involved in PTA and, you know, and homeschooling, those kind of, those, those are good. But teach them the scriptures. PTA may not lead them to the gospel, but the scriptures should. You remind them of the scriptures, you explain the scriptures, you show them how glorious the God is who is revealed in the scriptures You help them see the glimpses of the Savior on each page of the Scriptures. You encourage a longing in them to know God more and to love Him more. You dazzle them with the magnificence of the God that you worship. You teach your kids the Scriptures. That your children would be equipped for God's call. Again, you don't know what that call is. You don't know what that looks like, and that's okay. But we know in Ephesians 2 that that those whom he's saved, that he has prepared works beforehand, that they should walk in them. God has, if your child is going to be redeemed, God has a plan for their lives. I mean, he has a plan for their lives, period. But if God is going to reach and grab them out of darkness and redeem their hearts, then he has works of God that he has prepared for them. And your responsibility is to train them and equip them for that. 
some of your kids might be a missionary someday. One of your kids in this very room could be a missionary who takes the gospel to a group of people that have never heard of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Y'all have dreams like that? That one of our kids could be that? I mean, certainly, I don't, don't want one of my kids to go across the country into dangerous territory and be unsafe, but, but like to be used, like for one of my kids to be used of God in that way overwhelms my heart. Some of your kids could be a businessman or businesswoman who leads his or her boss to the cross of Christ where he and his entire family finds hope and redemption and that begins to permeate throughout that place of employment. That could be one of your kids. Some of your daughters could be the stay-at-home mom who models the gospel the same way that her mother did and dazzled her kids with the grace of the gospel. Guys, maybe one, mothers, maybe one day your daughter will want to be nobody other than the woman that her mother was. We see that, moms. The call of biblical motherhood is to equip for every good work that God has ordained. They would be confident. Next, the call of biblical motherhood is to have a character that is worthy of remembering. That is worthy of remembering. The character that is worthy of remembering. The idea here, back from the thing, he says, remember from whom you have learned is the idea of remembering her character. He's not just saying, you know, oh yeah, just make sure you take note of who taught you it. No, he's talking about remembering her in the context in which she taught it, the character in which she taught you this. And we know from the context of Timothy's mother and grandmother that they loved the Lord. Clearly, they loved the Lord. This was, this was their character. Why else would they teach them the Scriptures? They loved the Lord. They depended on the Scriptures. That they were made wise unto salvation from the Scriptures. That they knew that the Scriptures were good for that. That they had sincere faith, Paul tells us. That they had sincere faith. And I know, I'm certain that you have sincere faith, Timothy. As the faith of Eunice and Lois in their Lord was something so special that Paul said to Timothy, remember in your pursuit of godly living and the persecution that is inevitable, remember the character of your mother and your grandmother, Lois and Eunice. Mom, are you more worried about your hair than you are your kids seeing the beauty of a gentle and quiet inward Spirit. Mom, are you more worried about people knowing your preferences than you are about showing your kids a servant's heart that loves to care for other people as God has cared for you? Mom, is pride too important that you can't humble yourself and show your kids the humility of Christ? Mom, are you more worried about pleasing your kids than you are about pleasing God? Do your kids understand just how much more worthy of worship the king of the universe is as opposed to their 10-year-old agenda and 10-year-old drama? Do your kids know that? Do they see that in your life? 
or do they think they're the ones worthy of worship? Because mom and dad alike, your kids don't need help being God. They got that on their own, okay? They want to be God. They think they're God. <laughs> Why else do you think they demand their way all the time? It's because they say, I'm worthy of worship. You're not, Mom, and certainly God is not. Same thing, when we want our ways all the time, we're telling God He's not worthy of worship, but I am. So do you feed that with your kids? Do you feed the, you're worthy of worship? Or do you feed the, God is worthy of worship? So Mom, I'm talking about character pieces here. Servanthood, humility, worshiping the right person. The last thing I would say is this, moms, I hope there's a tension in your heart at this moment. I hope there's a tension. A tension that you cannot do this. I hope you feel a weightiness here. But there's hope. Because what does Paul tell Timothy to do in his pursuit of godly living and in helping and end in helping other people pursue their godly living? What does he tell Timothy to do? Yes, he certainly tells him to remember his mother. But why is he remembering his mother? Yes, the character, but he's remembering his mother because his mother did what? His grandmother did what? They leaned into the scriptures. They leaned into God who had breathed out these words. So mom, the call of biblical motherhood is not self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, or any of the alike. The call of biblical motherhood is to lean into God. And particularly in this context is to lean into God's word. That is your call. Just some quick thoughts on this as we come to a conclusion here. Moms, know your idols. Mom, know your idol. Dad, know your idols. You have a potential for selfishness, a potential for child worship, a potential for control, a potential for power that these would so consume your life. Ask God where your sins are at. That which you desire more than godly living, ask Him where that is at. That's what I mean by an idol. Know your idols. Know what you desire more greatly than the God of the universe and godly living that comes from that. God can reveal these to you through the study of His Word. God can reveal these to you through the body. But know what you tend to worship more than you worship God. Know that. Know it well and repent of it, and repent often. Confess it. Ask people to hold you accountable for it. But know your idols. Second of all, know the sufficiency of God's Word. Know, moms, the sufficiency of God's Word. Or again, we're talking about how do I lean into God? Part of leaning into God is stop leaning into myself and that which I deem is worthy of worship Stop leaning into my sufficiency. Lean into God's sufficiency. He says here, Paul says that the word is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. Profitable for correction. Profitable for training and righteousness. Mothers, you must first believe that the scriptures are good for these things. Do you believe that? 
when it comes to your kids? Do you believe that the words are good for this, that the Bible is good for this? Do you believe that the word is good for your own teaching, your own reproof, your own correction, your own training in righteousness? Moms, dads alike, do we pursue the scriptures in our pursuit of godliness? Or do we pursue Dr. Phil and Oprah Winfrey? If you're genuinely pursuing God, then you will be going to the scriptures. Mothers, let me encourage you, in order to lead your kids to the merciful king of the universe, you must be sitting at the king's feet and invite your kids to watch and come. You have to be sitting there. You do this by pursuing God and his word and then taking your kids on a journey to see the king through his word. You know, Chapman and I and the boys, and, and obviously Sarah gets to work through this too, we're just reading through God's big picture story Bible, which is just awesome. And we're working, it's like the third time that we're working through it, and, and Chapman's like getting to know the stories and what's happening next, and, and uh, there's just certain things, like just, I just love seeing that, getting to, you know, to grow and Hayden, on the other hand, it's like trying to get him just to sit still so we can read the Bible, you know, and, uh, which is, you know, it's just fun. And, and then getting like, one thing I've started doing, I, I've, I used to pray together, like pray with each boy separately in their beds. Now oftentimes we'll, all three of us will pray together. Uh, and like that's just wonderful. Seeing them and showing them daddy leaning into God and seeing mommy model for them leaning into God trusting in him but moms and dads you cannot invite them to see the king of the universe if you're not sitting there as well you throw yourself at the mercy seat of God and lay yourself before his feet and then invite your kids What do you think Jesus did at the cross? He threw himself at the mercy of his Father. Not because he had sinned, but on behalf of your sin. He threw himself at the mercy of his Father for you. Because why? Because in your sin, apart from his work, you couldn't do that. Moms, know your idols. Know, this, know that the word of God is sufficient. And third, know the power of the Holy Spirit. Moms, know the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, why? He says, I must go so that the Holy Spirit can come. And he even tells us that we'll be able to do greater things. And I won't get into what all that means. But, but mom, understand that you have the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this task. You do. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to lay down his life for us is the same Holy Spirit that will empower you to lay down your life for your kids. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to know the Word of God is the same Holy Spirit that will empower you to know God in His Word. The same Holy Spirit that, Je that empowered Jesus to worship the King of the universe and sit at His feet so that the world might be a footstool of His is the same Holy Spirit that will empower you to worship of the same king.
And lastly, the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus in His leading of the disciples is the same Holy Spirit that will empower your leading of your children. Now, Mom, hear me. You can't do this task. But as you worship the Creator of the world, you will find yourself searching the Scriptures, leading your kids to the Scriptures, where they can be made wise for salvation and be equipped for the work that God has planned for them. So mom, my encouragement to you today is this. Worship the king. Like you get to worship God. Why would you worship anything else? Why do I worship anything else? It's because I think that that other thing is more worthy of worship than God. That's blasphemy. So mom, worship the king. Mom, know him through his word. Some of us struggle to see that God is more worthy of worship than the things of this world because we don't know that much about him. Know more of him and you will see how much more worthy of worship he is. So know him through his word. And lastly, mom, teach him to your kids. Your parents say all the time, it breaks my heart. Well, I just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna train them up and help them make their own decision when it comes to religiosity. And I'm like, a parent who is okay with that is a parent who does not know God. Because a parent who knows God will understand that for their child to worship anything other than God is destruction and is despair. I don't want my kids ushered into life in destruction and despair, but I want them to see that only He is worthy of their worship. And anything else is pathetic. Everything else is not worthy, but God is. So mom, teach God to your kids. Obviously I'm implying through the scriptures. This is an honorable and humble calling. And my prayer today is that God would bless you mothers tremendously and enable you and equip you and encourage you to be a mother who doesn't depend on her own sufficiency, but that depends on God. And then as she depends on God, she trains her kids to love God, to know the scriptures. And to know that we're not going to be perfect at this. Moms, you're not going to be perfect at this. And, father, and mothers, if you haven't been perfect at this, or maybe you haven't done it very well at all, God can still redeem the time now. So give yourself to it now. Give yourself to God. Lean into Him. Know His scriptures. Teach them to your kids. I'd say being a mother of a child might end, but being the mother of a child may never end. So teach your kids the scriptures. You have to know them yourself too. Let me pray for us and we'll continue in worship this morning. Father, thank you for this time. And I pray that as we worship, that we would find peace and rest in not ourselves and not our past and not what is hopeful for the future and tomorrow, 
but that we would find peace and rest in the work of your son Jesus in such a way that we can with peace and encouragement and gentleness pursue godly living. And then as mothers, we can live this out. They can, that these mothers in this room can live out this pursuit of godly living in the midst of persecution and teach their kids the scriptures. So Father, I just pray that these next few moments would be moments of redemption. Not moments of resolution, but moments of redemption. Moments where our hearts are saying to you, Father, I cannot do this high and holy calling that you have called me to. I cannot do it. But Father, I know you can. And I know you want to. So let me humble myself and welcome you to do this work in my life, to my kids, as a mother, as a father, that only you can do. And Father, for, for those of us who are just simply struggling with godly living and the desire for that, I pray that, that amidst our desire, our prayers to live more godly lives, that we would pray to have a greater desire to live more godly lives. And that in that, we would find rest and peace knowing that our Savior Jesus Christ lived that perfect desire for perfect godly life. And we can find rest in Him that because of that life He lived and the death He died, that we can be set free from the desire for anything else but You. Father, I love You. And uh, just be with us in these moments as we worship and as we prepare to take communion this morning. Uh, Father, just uh, thankful for Your Word. And it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with us?
want to uh, encourage us as, as you all continue to play um, that, uh, you know, back in the wilderness as the Israelites uh, wandered, they wandered in their sin, um, that God was still merciful to them. And in Exodus, it talks about how that, uh, that God even gave bread from heaven in spite of their sin and in the wake of their sin, that, that God still provided for them. And ultimately, even in spite of our sin, God has sent His Son to be the bread of life for us. And I just want to encourage you as we get ready to take communion here, that, um, uh, first of all, if, if you're a follower of Christ and there is sin that you need to redeem, that you need redemption from, that you need to repent of, that you would, that you would do that. Um, that, that you would repent of that and, and give that to God and, and rest in His redemption, not in your righteous work. And I also encourage you if that if you're not a follower of Christ, that you would not partake. Paul tells us that, that we drink judgment upon ourselves when, when we are unrepentant and we take the Lord's Supper. Um, so I want to encourage you, those two things. And if you are not a follower of Christ, I'd encourage you to, to, to make that right today. Repent of your sins. Place your trust in Him. And I'm going to pray for us. And we're just one row at a time. Come forward. Uh, they're going to sing through this song again from the beginning, and, uh, and then we'll, uh, I'll come up and close us in prayer after we're done taking communion, okay? Let me pray for us. Father, as we partake of this together, um, Father, I pray that, uh, that if there is sin in our hearts that we have not repented for, that... Um, Father, we would repent of that, that we would see that, um, that you are more worthy of worship. And Father, if there's anyone in here that has not placed their faith in the work of your Son, that, that Father, that you would grant them repentance. And Father, I love you, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.